Hello and welcome to this lecture on computer history. Andrew Motion once described the Bible as an essential piece of cultural luggage and that's what I feel a bit about computer history. Although computer scientists are somewhat resistant to studies of the past, you know, our job is all about the future, we're not interested in the past, uh, I think it is important. A couple of themes that perhaps will come out in this lecture though is a lot of computer history has taken place in either corporate or government labs and in the transcript I review some of those corporate labs. I, I pick ones that I think employ over a thousand scientists at PhD level and above. A thousand, you know, uh, roughly by my calculations there are 800 computer science professors in the United Kingdom. One commercial lab employs more professors than in a whole country. So these labs are a bit of a curse if you're a computer science professor because it means you're constantly competing with the incredible, the well-paid and good people. But they're a blessing uh, too because you know they, they make the um, development cycle very short. Incredible discoveries in such short time and we've noticed that in the in the pandemic, of course. Uh, and I haven't counted the government labs. I mean, if I was to include CSIRO in Australia or Cunetic in uh, the United Kingdom or ARPA or Lawrence Livermore and so on in the US, um, very, very substantial resources are available. Um, but some of the discoveries are cloaked in either commercial or government secrecy. And that means the history that one writes soon after an event is, is wrong because uh, it may be not for 30 or 40, even 50 years, that it becomes evident that the real discoverers of things were. So, and that is evident in some of the computer histories when you read them. I should say that the breadth of the topic is, is appalling and I've had to make quite a lot of selection. I've picked a few themes that I think are interesting to people who are familiar with using a computer in the modern context. So I've picked scientific computing largely because it's the foundational theme of uh, computer science and I think it's interesting to look at how it led. I've picked business computing because most people in the audience I think are fairly familiar with that. I've picked media because that's a very modern uh, development when you think about your, your mobile phone and your uh, media players and Netflix and so on. I think that's you know fascinating area which is underexplored in history and in order to get there I'm going to have to take a deviation into uh, telecommunications and I'm going to talk a little bit about graphics because that also is uh, probably quite underexplored as an area of computer science history. So early computers looked a bit like this. This was ENIAC which was a US uh, device. Uh, it was devised for a very specific per uh, purpose which was artillery uh, calculations and um, you can see here the plug boards and switch boards that were the way that you programmed ENIAC. So although ENIAC was a digital computer it used um, finite uh, arithmetic to, to do its um, calculations rather than analog computer relying on signals and although it was electronic because it used valves and although it was programmable you could program it using cables it wasn't a stored program computer of the type that we're familiar with at the moment and it was rather specific. Uh, but for a long time ENIAC was regarded as the first um, electronic uh, computer 
And then along came um, the Atanasov Berry uh, computer, which predates it, uh, 1942, I've written here, might have been 1943. which was another pluggable uh, computer. And if I remember rightly, there was a bit of a patent dispute between uh, Berry and Tansoff and the uh, device who devised ENIAC. There was some feeling that there'd been some IP leakage from one to the other, and there are proponents for each one of the camps. Um, This is the Manchester Baby computer, uh, which dates from 1948, and it holds the laurels for the first electronic digital stored program uh, computer um, a bit uh, because there was a lot of it about. And a few months later, um, this is came CYRAC, which is the first Australian um, computer. One thing looking at these photos, which I think is quite notable, is um, they're all using valves, thermionic valves. And to make thermionic valves work, you need to have a few hundred volts DC um, skulking around on these frames or mainframes as they are called and um, they're quite dangerous so I mean you'll you'll get a nasty shock and may kill yourself if you uh, stick your fingers in the back of any of these things so um, the Manchester one looks like it's put together by a bag of like from a bag of bolts doesn't it which in fact it was it was constructed from parts sort of borrowed um, from the um, uh, what is now kinetic at Malvern uh, the radio laboratory there. Uh, I think the Australians get the prize for the most professional looking um, uh, device, followed by ENIAC. Uh, despite this, it was probably ENIAC that got, uh, you know, got a lot of the, um, it got a lot of the attention, as we shall see. ENIAC had an important, important input into uh, the history and uh, formation of early computing. That said, uh, the Manchester Baby currently holds the laurels for the first uh, programmable electronic digital programmable computer, which is too much of a mouthful, so I'm just going to say computer from now on. And this is the original publication in Nature on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side is a front page of the Times. The Times wasn't big on pictures uh, there. If you prefer, I've got the Daily Mail of a similar date. And um, these were... These articles ran before the scientific press. And in this case, what seems to have happened was um, Lord Mountbatten, of all people, had decided to give an after-dinner speech at the Institute of Radio Engineers annual dinner, which then was held in the Savoy. Um, It's now called the IET dinner and is held in the Grosvenor House Hotel. And um, it always takes place in February, so about this time of year, one sort of wonders if one's got any rich friends who's going to take you to this rather entertaining uh, thing. And um, probably fortified by uh, some drink, he he said uh, they, meaning computers, would cut down work now being done by expert scientists from years to hours. For the housewife too, there were cookers which in a matter of minutes would turn out a dinner that now takes many hours to prepare. So all bases covered um, with that story. And typically, as was typical of the age, the press was very enamoured by these things and referred to them as electronic brains. So already we see something that we see today, which is press predictions and indeed predictions from scientists running considerably in advance of reality. The hype cycle, as I've talked about in previous lectures, had already begun. However, what was interesting about scientific computing 
was that a lot of the foundations have been laid long before the practical computers. So I don't think this is hype. It's a very natural uh, feature of science to think ahead of what might be possible as the technology progresses. And pretty much every every decade in every century from about you know 1700 onwards had something that was vital to computer programming or numerical analysis as we would now uh, call the business of computing um, equations and so on so i've just picked a few i mean there's a whole starry star gallery of people who could have gone in here on the left hand side is comte de buffon 1733 uh, he uh, Buffon's needle he's famous for, which is one of the early um, statistical programming methods. Sometimes people call this Monte Carlo uh, analysis, in which you use random numbers in order to solve deterministic problems. Then we have Ada Lovelace, who we discussed in previous lectures on programs. Lovelace was interested in what precise set of steps would be needed to solve a set of equations. I think they were Bernoulli equations, actually. Um, and she wrote this up in a memo. Um, which is why she's called the you know the, the founder of programming. She didn't write a program because the analytical engine, which was Charles Babbage's idea, never got built. But she wrote steps that were close enough to a program for her to be accorded that honour. And I picked someone who you might not have heard of, Greta Herman. Greta Herman, nineteen twenty six, was working on automatic and computer algebra systems. She also did a lot of foundational work on um, quantum mechanics. People who know say that if people had bothered to read her stuff, then a lot of the faffing around trying to understand quantum mechanics would have been shortened considerably. And then I've picked Claude Shannon, um, largely because I've got a photo of him striding along in his University of East Anglia uh, robes here, uh, where he was awarded an honorary degree. But Shannon published a mathematical theory of communication before, and did a lot of the work on uh, that, that aspect of computation, before... Um, programmable store program computers were were constructed so i think that was an interesting feature of scientific computing which was uh, for instance the the manchester baby paper the first paper what they they talk about what problems they solved in that paper and they solved um, some factoring problems um, some common factors and um, another a numerical um, solution to a numerical problem. They were essentially solving scientific problems and it was published in Nature, which was a scientific journal. And the machines were seen as tools for science. Um, as they were quite widely in the industry. Um, I'm, you may have come across this quote. It's often sort of presented as an example of how stupid people can be. You know, huh, Thomas J. Watson, who was the president and founder of IBM and one of the great computer sales people and technologists of, our, of, of all time, really, um, is quoted with this uh, quote. According to the IBM corporate archives, it's probably a complete misreading of something. Um, what he actually said in IBM's annual stockholder meeting in April 28th, 1953, was something he was talking about, the IBM 701. The IBM 701 was a scientific computer, an early scientific computer. And what he said was he developed a paper plan for such a machine and took this paper plan across the country to some 20 concerns we thought could use such a machine. I would like to tell you that the machine rents for between twelve and $18,000 a month. Wow, an enormous sum. 
so it was not the sort of thing that could be sold from place to place, too right. But as a result of our trip, on which we expected to get orders for five machines, we came home with orders for 18. So the truth was, I mentioned this quote for two reasons. One is people get quotes wrong, but the truth was that the demand was considerably higher. What he really said was, I think there's a market for much more than five. <laughs> the second thing, which is pertinent to this discussion, is what he's talking about there is a market for scientific machines. We are still in the realm of solving using these very, very expensive and custom-built machines for solving scientific problems. Nevertheless, um, it was soon picked up by others. Now, the history of science has been intimately coupled with computers, and I've just picked a couple of recent examples because I think they're interesting in current times. The first one is some work here by Andrew Page, who is a scientist at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich. And Andrew's team, a very large team, including the, um, the uh, chief epidemiologist for Norfolk here, have been sequencing um, COVID uh, samples from people who thought they might have COVID uh, over the last um, over the course of pandemic. And in the course of that, they've done about 10,000 genetic sequences. Now, um, let me give you some context. If Norfolk, England, uh, which has about 800,000 uh, people, if it was a country in terms of its genetic sequencing capability, it would be the sixth largest country in the world. It's an enormous activity. And in order to do genetic sequencing, you, you sort of follow a very long recipe of sort of biochemical instructions. And then the computing bit, which is the bit that actually tells you, gives you these nice diagrams, is you look at the sequence of um, components in the protein and you match them quickly against a database. It's a string matching problem. And what this slide shows on the outside is a color code for the world lineage of all the uh, COVID uh, genomes known in the world. And on the interior is another color bar, and that's the color bar for the UK lineage of COVID. The UK lineage is more detailed than the world because the UK is a world leader in genomic uh, testing. And inside that, you can see the tree, which shows that you know the Norfolk lineage is quite, um, you know, it, it doesn't cover the full spectrum of the world. As you wouldn't expect it to. Very important piece of work and has allowed a lot of detective work in the UK and in Norfolk in particular that allows um, scientists and medics to get on top of COVID outbreaks very quickly and understand about the propagation and nature of the disease. The root of that is a massive amount of computer science, which has quite a different flavor to early scientific computing. Early scientific computing was generally about solving equations. Um, we're now doing a lot of computing, and this has been the last few decades, concerned with matching and string problems, because that, that is essentially what genetics is. It's a string matching problem. If I move more recently to themes, this is a, an example of trying to predict how a protein folds itself up. So a protein has these, again, these little units. And in principle, if you know these units in a protein, then you know what the electromagnetic forces are for each one of those units. And it's a floppy string and it should bend in a very predictable way. 
when you see that diagram on the left, you somewhat quake at the thought of predicting it. Nevertheless, there are challenges to do this, and the current winner of that challenge is something called AlphaFold 2, which is an artificial intelligence uh, approach to prediction in which it learns the uh, structure. Scientists aren't mad keen on applying artificial intelligence at the moment. I think one because of the human reason, which is nobody likes to be replaced by a machine. And the second is a sort of doubt that a black box approach is, is useful to science. Nevertheless, this is precisely the sort of bleeding edge of scientific programming and many hours of supercomputer time are spent solving problems like this, which are themselves very important for understanding viruses and the meaning and structure of life. The program that did this was called AlphaFold 2, which is comes out of um, DeepMind, which is one of those corporate labs that I was referring to earlier and run by uh, Google, owned by Google, but based in, based in London. If you're interested, you can go to their website and uh, there's a very nice video where they talk you through what they're working on. So, back to the 1940s. It soon became evident in the 1940s that business had a number of problems that would benefit from uh, business computing. And um, on the right here is a picture of uh, Grace Hopper, who is one of the sort of heroes and pioneers of uh, computer science. I talked about her in the last lecture on programs because she was one of the people, if not the person, to develop uh, compilers. Um, and she was an early languages pioneer. And she happens to be standing in front of a univac made by the Remington Rand Corporation, of which she was a part for a few years. And I thought it would be interesting to play one of the early marketing videos for univac, uh, because it's, it's, it's quaint, but also because um, it brings out some of the features of uh, programmable computers that made them useful to businesses. First developed for use by our armed forces, electronic computing systems have become essential to the design and development of new weapons for defense. Through the use of electronic computing systems, problems once considered insurmountable because of the years of computation necessary for their solution are now being solved in minutes. For scientists in the Atomic Energy Commission, UNIVAC is rapidly turning out answers. Answers which have profound significance in the lives of all of us. Keeping abreast of these latest scientific developments, leaders in business have been quick to grasp the efficiency of UNIVAC for handling the large data processing operations that consume more and more precious time within their organizations. For example, the high-speed printer, an important component of the UNIVAC system, greatly facilitates the automatic process. Interesting. Um, Univac talking there about the fact it's a general purpose computer, it's good for data processing. And um, if I'd let them go on, you know, they would have talked about uh, printing, um, IO always being important for business. Uh, Univac was also, I think, brilliantly sold. I mean, an example of this was um, CBS television when covering the uh, Eisenhower Stevenson election decided to employ a team to uh, a, a Univac and a team of programmers to try and predict the election. And um, there's a story to be written about it. I mean, as far as I can tell, it was largely female team of um, uh, programmers. And um, as you can see from this slide, um, they did quite extraordinarily well. Uh, I've got a short clip of um, 
how it played out, actually. Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. CBS were convinced that to win the lion's share of the election night audience, what they needed was a Univac computer in studio to forecast the result. Turn to that miracle of the modern age, the electronic brain Univac and Charles Collingwood. This is the face of a Univac. A Univac is a fabulous electronic machine which we have borrowed to help us predict this election from the basis of the early returns as they come in. Univac is going to try to predict the winner for us just as early as we can possibly get the returns in. For the first time, a computer was about to predict the outcome of an election. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about the theory of this. This is not a joke or a trick. It's an experiment. We think it's going to work. We don't know. We hope it'll work. At any rate, for the last... At 8 o'clock, Collingwood asked Univac to type out its prediction. Can you tell us uh, what your prediction is now on the basis of the returns that we've had so far? Have you got a prediction for us, Univac? I don't know. I think that Univac is probably an honest machine, a good deal more honest than a lot of commentators who are working, and he doesn't think he's got a, enough to tell us anything about yet. But we'll be back with him later in the evening. Now back to Walter What Trump. Collingwood didn't know was that Univac did have something to say, and this was it. Just before CBS went on the air, Univac predicted Eisenhower would beat Stevenson by a landslide. The problem was, no one believed it. The machine turned out this answer that they didn't believe. The polls were telling them that it was going to be about a 50-50 election, and we were telling them it's a landslide with only 5% of the vote. And they couldn't believe that you could predict the thing as accurately as we did, which was in a few percent, with only 5% of the vote. So everybody was thrown into total confusion. Brilliant bit of uh, numerical analysis. I don't know if that, because predicting elections is notoriously difficult. Um, so I don't know if they just struck lucky or they were just great, great programmers. I mean, history has not yet recorded that story. It was a great story. It'll make a good film, I think. Um, meanwhile, on the uh, other side of the Atlantic in the United Kingdom um, was a computer called Leo. And uh, what had happened was um, there was a sort of um, Costa Coffee of its day called Lion's Tea Shops. And Lion's Tea Shops were a very well-run business, uh, you know, world-leading in their sort of uh, ordering stock control and management. And they had sent a team over to the USA to look at business methods. And they had stopped by to look at ENIAC and realised immediately that computers could help them run their business. Uh, so when they returned to the UK, they started looking around for a, um, a computer to work with, and they discovered EDSAC. EDSAC was a Cambridge computer, uh, early one of the early ones. They put some Seacorn money in, which gave them some intellectual property um, rights, I, I guess, or at least an in into the development. And with that, they were able to devise their own computer, which they called the Leo One, the Lions Electronic Office. And the Leo Computer Company was born and produced a range of, uh, of computers, which by all accounts were, you know, pretty good. Um, here's a, a PR film for, for one of them. Despite the large numbers of clerks employed today, sufficient clerks are still hard to find. 
With full employment, the security of clerical work does not offer the old attraction. But trade is becoming more competitive, so clerks are in even greater demand. To provide statistics from a mass of data, so that management can grasp the changing factors and act accordingly. To fulfill this modern need came the first automatic office in the world. Electronic computers are not new, but Leo was the first designed for office work. Since 1953, it has been employed regularly on accounting, stock and cost control, statistics, and of course, payroll. Leo is fast and flexible. It can test the feasibility of the information that is fed into it and check the accuracy of its own results following orthodox accounting principles. Leo can be installed anywhere. It does not require any having its own ventilation system. It is supplied complete with equipment for stabilizing the... Yeah, I'm not sure it could be installed anywhere. Uh, it needs a fairly old bit of equipment. The film goes on to talk about input-output, actually. One of the features of Leo was you could connect lots of different types of input-output printers and so on to it, and that made it uh, popular. It was... Um, it's all a bit of a mystery. I mean, so if you want to read about it, there's a book called A Computer Called Leo. Uh, by the way, I should say that all, all these films are available on YouTube. All the films I'm showing that are YouTube films, so you very easily find them. Um, the why? Well, it got into commercial trouble, and uh, Leo was Leo. The company was sold, and um, I saw an analysis recently which claimed that. Not only did Leo, the company, not make any money selling these things because they priced them too cheap, uh, the benefits that Leo provided to Lyons Coffee Shop were, were marginal. I find that hard to believe, but anyway, you know, this is, it's often the case that early movers don't do very well in computing. You need to be the, the second mouse, not the, not the early bird. Now, unless you're watching this and you're familiar with payroll or stock control or any of those things, which were the preserve of mainframe computers in business computing, I think it's fair to say that these things are not sort of the the everyday experience of of most of us. I should add, by the way, that Leo was famous for another thing. They invented bureau computing. So for a number of years, they ran the payroll of Ford UK. Um, so it was a white-labeled service. Um, Ford UK, if you're an employee of Ford UK, you saw your payroll. You didn't necessarily know it was produced by... Uh, Leo computers. Um, so they also invented, you know, off-site cloud computing, as we would call it now, was um, was probably invented in, invented then, although it didn't use electronic. Um, actually, I don't know how they were connected. That's a, another 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 lecture there. Right now, what about conventional business computing, by which I mean the sort of everyday office activities, which probably everybody on the planet is very very familiar. With. Well, let's look at those. So let's start with word processing, okay? Which now there's some debate about who had this word first. Was it the English word processing, or was it the German Textverarbeitung? Textverarbeitung. Well, I think it was probably word processing had it, but the concept was sold and developed quite extensively by a man called Ulrich Steinhilper, and. Um, even if it wasn't, we like Ulrich Steinhilper because he was such a fascinating person. I mean, he was a World War II fighter pilot who was shot down over London and then interned in Canada. And he spent most of the war trying to escape, which he did quite successfully uh, during the war. And then he escaped essentially to sell IBM 
uh, hardware in in Germany, and um, it was really a concept, a thought, a thought experiment. He called it the what did he call it? Something like the rhombus of word processing rhombus, I think it was called, which was a thought activity associated with word processing. But there was a gap. There was a very obvious gap. Um, you either were a printer, in which case you had a vast typesetting machine which moved lead type around, um, or you were a typist. And various people tried to fill the gap. Um, this is a rather twee one, uh, which comes from um, IBM. It's called the IBM uh, MagCard 2 typewriter. Um, I'll need to... And what MagCard 2 did was, um, as will be evident, was it essentially just wrote the text onto um, some magnetic storage. And the advantage of that was revision. My kitsch love of 1960s music couldn't, um, meant I had to include this film. I'm George Zucke. The purpose of this informal presentation is to acquaint you with the revision capability of the MagCard 2 and how these capabilities affect throughput. The text we will be using in this revision cycle is represented by these five pages. I have five magnetic cards that represent the text on the five pages. Therefore, Okay, well, there's another 45 minutes of that if you want to know really how to use a MagCard 2, but I, th I think you get the picture. It's not a word processor, is it? It's a, a sort of fancy typewriter, uh, and it cost $11,000 in 1976, which is a lot of money. But you can see people are trying to fill the gap. And there were other people trying to fill the gap with specialist uh, machines. And I'll show you um, an advert for, for one of them, because it's particularly prescient. to work here very late. No more. Because of this. It is TV. It's typewriter. It's Lanier's Easy One. Lanier's new Easy One work processor. Now it's so easy to zip out accurate reports, memos, letters. Easy to maintain lists. Easy for your total business to perform like it should. Mm. But will it do windows? <laughs> the new Easy One from Lanier. We make your good people even better. Right, what a fascinating advert, 1981. So 1981 was that sort of bridge period between when we didn't really have word processors on PCs um, and there was overlap from these specialist machines, this one made by Lanier, but there were others made by Wang and various others. And uh, what was it, $6,000, which I think is about uh, 20000 in today's, uh, today's money, so roughly the price of a car. <laughs> <laughs> fairly appalling. What's interesting to me about this advert is the the ladies, the last thing she says, but will it do Windows? And clearly what she means, because Windows hasn't been invented then, was um, will it clean Windows? Ha ha ha. What she didn't know was that in um, 83, I think, uh, Microsoft Windows hit the market and something very important happened uh, 
at that transition. So the situation was, uh, at 81, was that there were some word processing programs out there, WordStar, WordPerfect, and Word, I think, probably existed then. WordPerfect was the market leader. As Microsoft transitioned to Windows, WordPerfect missed it. They were too slow to port the software across. So if you got a machine bundled with Windows, you only had Word. Um, you couldn't use WordPerfect. So that was a problem. And bundling was something that was really came to the fore. Bundling was a, a tremendous weed where you put software together, either with hardware or with other software, which meant that users only had to pay for the bundle. They didn't have to pay for individual bits of software. That killed WordPerfect and Word, which was an inferior system, no question about it, came to dominate the word processing market by, you know, and certainly by the late 80s, it was all over. Very interesting bit of corporate history. Word also used something called lock-in. Uh, lock-in is where you have a feature that um, is unique to a piece of software and you don't want to, you don't, some resistance to moving because of it. In Word's case, it wasn't a feature, it was format lock-in. The Word format was unique and hadn't been decoded at that time. So um, people had to, once they'd switched to Word, they were stuck. And you could read Word Perfect in, but it couldn't, wouldn't read it out. A deliberate choice, you know, commercial choice. Now, Microsoft doesn't do that anymore. They have a completely different business philosophy, thank goodness. But in those days, a very aggressive uh, marketing from Microsoft, and that was the sort of thing they did. And that was why Word came to dominate, and still does. Although, to be fair, its market share has been falling recently because uh, Apple Pages is bundled with uh, a Mac, at least I think it is, and um, uh, Google Docs, for example, is bundled with your Google services. So there it's a different model, which is you give away lots of private data so that other people can sell you things in exchange for free access to their packages. You know, it's a different model, but it's essentially, it's essentially a bundling type um, model. Now, I suppose alongside these, I also want to mention markup languages, which I talked a little bit about in programming. Um, they've been around for a long time and they allow you to make um, descriptions of a page. The, um, the early ones were based or called runoff or ROF or TROF, and they were associated with Unix. Uh, one of the most famous and long-lived ones has been uh, Tex, T-E-X, always pronounced Tech. Uh, T-E-K-I, the Greek letter, or LaTeX, um, uh, designed by Donald Knuth, who I talked a little bit about in the uh, previous uh, lecture. Um, it, it doesn't have wide penetration, LaTeX, but almost all serious mathematicians and computer scientists use it, even though it's not really a layout editor. It's just a description language for um, pages. Very widely adopted, largely due to its portability, lack of bugs and lack of lock-in. It's the exact opposite of lock-in. Okay, so that's word processors. Now, what about spreadsheets and other sort of instruments of torture? Well, the spreadsheet is more difficult to define. You know, what exactly is it? Um, you know, it, it's not just calculating things because that's been around for ages. So probably it's this rectangular grid and it's got this sort of automatic calculation aspect to it. If you change a cell here, then this one over here should also change. And um, in the early days of 
were of uh, spreadsheets you had to do that manually you'd hit recalculate until everything stabilized but one of the first ones that actually did it automatically was Lanpar uh, designed by Rennie Pardo and Remy Landau and it was soon licensed out to um, Apple but they they didn't license it to Lotus who had a market leading product called Lotus 123 um, they then had a patent war between them, um, starting in 1970, finally ended in 1995, with the judge declaring that the Landpar patent was unenforceable. A very interesting ruling, which arose because um, the judge decided that Pardo and Landau had left out of the patent various critical disclosures, as they're called. Disclosures are um, descriptions of what things you have to know in order to understand this patent. Now it's still contested by um, well by Pardo and Lando and if you look on the web you'll find some rather bitter um, remarks about how they were ripped off by their patent attorney and so on and so on. Um, from our perspective you know Lampard was a bit of a it wasn't a big volume uh, piece of software at all. The, the, the market leaders were Supercalc and Multiplan which were probably inferior to the, by the way, they're the, probably the first examples of what you might call a, uh, well, no, let me just revise that. I mean, alongside that came into being a program called VisiCalc. VisiCalc was associated with the Apple II computer. Um, and it was so good that people wanted to buy Apple II computers so they could run VisiCalc. Um, and uh, so it's the first example of what's called a killer app. A killer app is something where you, you're prepared to buy a new computer in order to run something. And it was an example of a WYSIWYG system. And uh, what you see is what you get. WYSIWYG systems were fascinating because they were probably invented by a guy called Ivan Sutherland at MIT, who worked on a sort of very early Windows um, system using uh, very, very primitive computers that were available to him at the time. Sutherland was a PhD student of... Claude Shannon, the guy who invented um, information theory and was also a professor at uh, MIT. And we'll come back to him uh, later, actually, when I talk about graphics, because Sutherland was a graphics pioneer. OK, well, that's enough about Windows. But what about, you know, the PowerPoint? Much more interesting. Um, oh, let me just show you VisiCalc, because VisiCalc was so important. About a year later, around October 1979, the first copies of VisiCalc shipped out. So here it is, the granddaddy of electronic spreadsheets. Now obviously spreadsheet programs like Excel have way more functions and capabilities than this, but what I find interesting is the basic structure hasn't really changed at all. You have the familiar columns and rows, and you can simply start typing in your column headers as you would naturally in Excel. Yeah, I agree. Looks just like it does today, really. Um, that whirring noise is the fan associated with Apple II uh, computer and uh, you could hear on the backing track there. Right, PowerPoint. What was it like before PowerPoint? Well, if you were going to give a business presentation or a lecture, you, you, you didn't have many useful technologies that you could use. I mean, you could use a blackboard or a whiteboard and that was quite popular. If you were in a business setting, you would often use a flip chart, still around today. Um, and um, I'll just show you it. This is this is Matthias Pohm, who who started a political party in Switzerland called the Anti PowerPoint Party. So he's going to demonstrate in this video how 
inferior PowerPoint is compared to his beautiful diagrams on a uh, flip chart. If this is here the A client Pi, so our bank possesses a share of Now, to my mind, that shows very convincingly how terrible uh, flip charts are compared to PowerPoint, but clearly Mr. Poem thinks different. So that was one option. The other option, which was much more expensive, was to use 35mm slides. And these slides fitted into a round thing or a rectangular thing called a carousel, usually. And um, you could either flip between them using some remote control, which was a cable, and when I started lecturing, they had these things at the back of lecture halls and you hear clatter, clatter, clatter as the slides moved from one to the other. Um, if you had a big presentation to do, then you would get banks of these things and they would give you a sort of video effect as you switch between these. And um, I, I struggled to find a video illustrate. I mean, if you're over the age of 30, you don't need this illustrating because it was part of your nightmare of your everyday existence, fiddling around with these things. But if you're under the age of 30, you've probably never seen them. So I struggled to find a video illustrating them until I found a, a video, uh, a program made about the making of a lecture called the Photon Connection. Uh, it's a bit difficult to describe this, but for various reasons, the Institution of Electrical Engineers ran a, an annual lecture called the Faraday Lecture, which toured the United Kingdom, went out to hundreds of thousands of school kids and general public to talk about issues and technology, and it was sponsored by technology companies. And the absolute peak of achievement was one called the Photon Connection, which was sponsored by STC. And um, I think it will still stand as the best piece of industrial theatre of all time. There's a fascinating film, which you can find on YouTube. I've just clipped a bit of it, which is the bit when they're struggling or fiddling around with the, um, with the slide projectors. 18 slide projectors. We're going to have to advance onto the first set of speaker support. 2,000 computer-controlled cues. Some of those pictures at the very beginning of the sequence. All right. Stop there. All right. Right, I'm going to take that one out. And put in a new one. Perhaps if you can go back a cue, and I can see that. I'll run it from the beginning of that section. Right. Yeah, it was a nightmare doing these things. You'd spend hours queuing these things up, and it was absolutely horrific. It took ages and ages to prepare talks. Uh, so much better. Well, how did PowerPoint come about? Well, firstly, there wasn't much comp competition out there. There were a few drawing programs. There was one called Slide Master and another called HP Draw, but they were really sort of graphics programs. I don't think they had the power of PowerPoint. PowerPoint arose from something called a company called Forethought, um, which um, invented it from scratch, and it's been a market leader since uh, it was invented. And it was the first acquisition by Microsoft. Microsoft and all these big tech companies now buy companies willy-nilly, but this was their first and most valuable acquisition, in my humble uh, opinion. So 
PowerPoint was a relative late late invention, you know, um, uh, sort of eight, late 80s when it came to prominence. And uh, power, uh, Forethought was acquired by Microsoft in uh, 1987. Now, I've neatly sort of switched here from one technology, which is mainframes, through to personal computers without saying much about the middle. And I'm going to now devote a little bit of time to talking about the, the middle, if you like, of the the, the chain, but I'm going to do that by switching themes. I now want to talk a little bit about media. And uh, the history of media really starts with computers playing tunes. And uh, the, the current uh, first record goes to uh, CIRAC, the Australian computer, which probably uh, was producing tunes in 1950, followed very shortly by the Ferranti Mark I which was recorded by the BBC in 1951. There wasn't a recording of Cyrax, so I've had to use a reconstruction, but I'll just play you some of these, uh, you know, some of their output so you can get a flavour for what was what it sounded like. So this is a reconstruction of Cyrax. This is the Ferranti Mark One. Uh, sorry about the crackles. They are the. They were recorded on. Now, um, in order to make a computer play a tune, it's quite simple. You hook up a loudspeaker to one of the lines, a data line or an address line. You write a program that sends that line up and down and you fiddle around with delays such that it goes up and down at roughly the right frequency. They didn't get the frequencies quite right, which is why you could hear some of the notes were off. You know, it was a sort of toy uh, thing that programmers did in the dark evenings when they didn't have anything to do. Now, but what about the major use of computers, which is recorded music. Well, that's an interesting one because um, telephony companies had a lot of the technology available to do that for a long time. So what you need is a, something that convert analog signals into digital, an analog to digital converter, and a digital to analog converter, and some storage algorithms, and importantly, communication. So 1921, um, this is a patent due to Paul M. Rainey, and it's a commutator system that were, it's a fax machine, digital fax machine, and is an example of what we would now call pulse code modulation. PCM, pulse code modulation, means sending, sending signals digitally. Um, so over here we've got a light, and the light is used to shine through some film, the film, the light falls on a photocell. The photocell drives a galvanometer. There's another light which shines on a mirror. The mirror is deflected onto the appropriate uh, photo detector down on the bottom left. And the one that is on is then sampled and switched across to by the commutator. And the wire that runs horizontally at the top of the slide, that's the uh, system that uh, transmits it to a single wire, like a telegraph or something like that. 
And then over here, we've got another film which gets exposed and that gives a replica of it. 1921, the patent was granted in 1926. It's amazingly early. Um, so the technology from telephony was available very early, which you know, is rather fascinating. So why didn't we see more made of digital music and recorded music and video with general purpose computers until very late? Okay, well, there's a whole load of factors that played into it. Um, the first one is probably bandwidth, I think is a very significant issue. Um, about an hour of recorded digital music, recorded to a high standard, occupies about six or 700 megabytes. Well, internet wasn't really around domestically <laughs> you know, at that time. Specialized networks, I mean, I, I worked as a graduate student in the 80s and um, we thought it was very, very exciting to be able to send an email around the world, you know, but the idea of sending digital music around the world wouldn't wouldn't have occurred to us actually. It would have seemed hideously impractical for one thing. You know, I mean, the idea that there would there could have been digital tunes transferred around the world, we would have quaked at the expense of sending it. That's for sure. Um, so that's one problem, and. The other problem is the internet didn't really take off. So in, this is a, a graph adapted from some figures from the uh, ITU, the International Telecommunications Unit, which show internet use as a percentage of um, uh, inhabitants. So currently, we, you know, we must be up in the 80 or 90% in the Western world for um, internet access, probably, probably even higher, I should think, nowadays. Um, but... This is when the iPod arose, okay, 2001. So when the iPod appeared, you couldn't really rely on people having, enough people having internet access for digital music to be a reality. So the critical thing that had to happen was a way of distributing things to people, it, a lot of data to people. That was one thing that was important. And the other critical thing was compression. Uh, compression that you couldn't hear the effects of um, was very, very, very uh, important. And um, just to call out some important people, I think you know I should we should sort of mention um, these two uh, characters who um, are the uh, founders of the MPEG uh, system. This is Hiroshi, Hiroshi Yasuda and Leonardo Carleone. So I haven't met them, I haven't met them both, I've met one of them. Um, very, uh, certainly Carleone, a very charismatic person who essentially drove through uh, standards in compression and hence decompression that were international and important and allowed computers to interoperate. That work took place in the late 80s, early 90s, and that was what made digital music, digital television, and so on, uh, practical. Um, it, it probably hasn't occurred to people, but there's an enormous amount of compression needed to make a service like Netflix uh, work. You know, probably you know, hundreds to one, if not thousands to one compression ratio is needed. It's the equivalent of trying to fit the, the Thames into, uh, the River Thames running through London into 
the River Yare that runs through the middle of Norwich without anyone noticing. You know, it's a very, very substantial um, piece of engineering required to make it to make it work. Plus the fort, plus all of that uh, stuff from uh, telecommunication technology. Now, the other factor was that most telephony companies controlled their own private network, which was part of the PSTN, the Public Switch Telephone Network, and they did so in a monopolistic uh, position. And it really was a big, big stifle on innovation. Now, I realise I haven't said much about graphics, but I feel I ought to, and games. Um, so let's have a quick diversion. Computer games have a long history, and uh, Alan Turing, for example, wrote an early chess algorithm uh, for the Manchester Universal Electronic Computer, made by Ferranti, the Ferranti Mark I. It was recently tested, actually, by Gary Kasparov. Somebody re reprogrammed it, and this is Kasparov commenting on it. It was an outstanding accomplishment, and also certain of his ideas that he built there as rules. Uh, they are quite important for, for modern computing. So we just... Okay, now what about graphical games? Uh, the thing about Turing's um, algorithm was it couldn't actually run on the Ferranti Mark I. It wasn't powerful enough, so we had to test it by paper. What about real games that look a bit like today's graphical um, games? Okay, well, um, Space War is generally thought to be the first one. And here's a little video of um, someone playing Space War at one of the computer museums in the US. Space War, uh, this is running on a PDP-1. It's a vector display. And the guy is controlling the spacecraft at the bottom here and pressing a button to fire boulders out the front of it. Um, and he's trying to destroy the other uh, spacecraft, which ah, he has just done very successfully. I mention this because it's it, it, it came out of some graduate students and staff who were working on this computer called the PDP-1. PDP-1 was an important computer. It was made by Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC, as we all called them. And it had this interesting display, which was a cathode ray tube. It was a vector display, which you could use for graphics and graphs and various other things. It was color, because if you fired the beam twice at the same, it punched through the phosphor and changed, I think, to a sort of bluish color rather than a greenish color. It had a teletype terminal and a printer. Well, teletype, which is a typewriter and a printer in front of you. And it had this easily accessible backbone, so you could you could put these modules in the back, or you could hack you could put in your own stuff. So it became known as the first hacker's computer. You could easily do stuff interactively, where you didn't have to sit down with a pencil and paper and write down a program, and write down the algorithm, write down the program, put it onto punch cards, turn the wheel, and discover it didn't work. No, no, no. You sat in front of a PDP one and did stuff. And they were really, they were, they were transistor computers and they, they became miniaturized as integrated circuits, came in and went through a whole range of PDPs and digital, digital produced wonderful computers. You know, everybody wanted a DEC um, computer and uh, they morphed into something called a VAX um, computer, which was so famous that poems are written about uh, VAX. There's a famous poem about uh, VAX um, multitasking um, system, which I'm sure you can find on the internet if you if you look for them. 
uh, I can't quite remember why they ran into financial trouble, but they were they were bought by Compaq, who were a PC manufacturer. Disastrous acquisition by Compaq, and subsequently disastrously acquired by Hewlett Packard, and that was the end of the Vax and the PDP range. Very sad. Yeah. That was the start of computer games. What computer games did was emphasize the need for developments in graphics. And I, I feel I ought to spend at least 30 seconds pointing out the incredible importance of a computer science department at the University of Utah when it comes to computer graphics. If you look at the list of companies that the alumni have founded, ignore the developments. You know, we've got WordPerfect, Pixar, Silicon Graphics, Netscape, Evans and Sutherland, Wimam, Nantella, Genie, Adobe, all came out of Utah alums, all roughly at the same time. Uh, many of them recruited by Ivan Sutherland. Ivan Sutherland was that PhD student I mentioned earlier, who was a PhD student of Claude Shannon and developed what we now know as Windows. Um, so there's that continuous line in scientific computing of a sort of family tree of who knew who. Jim Clark I've met because he's a He's a UEA uh, honorary award holder, most interesting man, triple billionaire. Um, used to be very fond of yachting, but I think, um, I mean, very expensive yachting. Uh, but, you know, all very important uh, people. What graphics told us was the importance of being able to do things in real time. In order to do things in real time, it was necessary to add additional processing capacity to your general purpose computer. So we've come back full circle now to specific computers like the ENIAC, for example, which was an example of a specific computer. But now we're building computers which may be programmable within a range of activity, but not fully programmable. They might be specially designed to do certain things. The early ones were very, you know, very restricted capabilities, and I've got one here as the IBM Monochrome Display Adapter. I can't quite remember much about this, but I think you could address each pixel, so you could draw graphs in monochrome. I seem to remember that. Um, I had a Commodore PET at my school. I didn't have one of these. I can't quite remember how it worked. Um, then I picked a 2D graphics card. Uh, the one everyone remembers was the S3911. It, wasn't, it was called the 911 because the inventors liked the Porsche 911 and it sounded cool, so it was called that. And now, of course, we have graphics cards that run 3D rendering in real time in front of you. And this is an example of the, you know, the latest and greatest um, graphics, uh, graphics processing unit. This is one made by NVIDIA and it's called the Titan RX and it could be yours for... A uh, princely, um, I think they cost about two and a half thousand dollars. If you can find them in 2021, at the moment there's a world shortage of these uh, devices and they can't be found. What I thought you might find interesting is the way this is sold on the NVIDIA website. So I, I've concealed that, but let me just um, display it to you. Um, yeah, the Titan RTX powers AI, machine learning, and creative workflows. Yeah, these graphics coprocessors are the essential components in a scientific computing toolset now. So our supercomputers at work have graphics coprocessors on them because it turns out 
They're very useful for solving problems in AI. And in fact, scientists are a major customer of graphics processors. So I've taken our history full circle, haven't I? I've, I've said how we started with scientific computing, how we've been through all of these developments and how a number of developments, particularly in home computing, have now fed back into scientific computing. So like all histories, we have come full cycle uh, back to the origins of computing and long may it continue. If you're interested, here are some interesting places to visit when you're allowed to visit. Uh, in the United Kingdom, there's a National Museum of Computing where you can find a lot of stuff, particularly about the wartime um, uh, efforts of computing, which I haven't had time to talk about here at all, but also they have some very interesting uh, working uh, replicas and real computers, uh, you know, restored computers. The Smithsonian has an excellent archive relating to, they hold the Grace Hopper archive and have some uh, also some interesting um, archives on early uh, US computing. The Deutsche Museum in Munich holds replicas, I think they're replicas, of the Zuza computers, which also I haven't talked about in this lecture, or I have mentioned, although I have mentioned in previous lectures. Science Work Victoria holds the restored version of CIRAC, that uh, first Australian computer and the first player of the first uh, computer tune. Science Museum London is very good on calculating machines and uh, pre-computer computers, if you like. The uh, also good exhibition on Babbage's work, if I remember rightly. IBM Archives always, IBM has been such an important company in the history of computing. I should also mention the archives of IT, which are uh, uh, sort of personal histories from people who are important in the British IT industry. Now, this list could have been longer, and um, you know, if you if you want to know more, Wikipedia is particularly strong on computer history, as you might expect. Uh, looking forward, I'm looking forward to seeing you in my next lecture, which will cover the intriguing topic of networking. And if I forgot to mention it. I should have mentioned that I am sponsored by the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists who sponsor public education and other things. Thank you.